he's as close as the mention of his name. So he's here today. He's with us. The beautiful, wonderful name of Jesus. There's a, a story of a couple. They're going through a little bit of a hard time in their marriage. So the wife had a bright idea. Let's get two boxes. And when I'm frustrated at you, um, I'm going to write down what that frustration is and put it in the box. And when you're frustrated at me, write down what it is and put it in your box. And at the end of the week, let's compare notes and let's try to work out what these frustrations you know, are and what these difficulties that we're going through so that we can have a better marriage. So she, you know, the week went on, regular week with frustrations here and there, difficulties, hardships here and there. At the end of the week, they got together, one box, another box. So the wife opens up her box She's, uh, and she starts reading out, I was frustrated when you did this, and this, and this thing, and that thing that happened, and the other thing that happened, and the husband is listening to, to all of those things, and just trying to take it all in, and they're trying to work out some of their problems and issues, and when she's done with all of her frustrations in her box, then she waits, the husband then opens his box, and there's one piece of paper in it. And in that one piece of paper, he opens it up and he reads it. I love you. I think that was a husband that started clapping first. <laughs> love is what can change our lives. Love is what can change our marriages. Love is what can change our families as well. The love of Jesus is transformational in our lives. And, and as I share this morning a little bit about marriage, um, a couple weeks ago I shared a little bit about the beauty of singleness. Today is the blessing of marriage. But single people, if you're listening in, a lot of the points that I'm sharing here translates to your life as well too. So don't be like, all right, I'm tuning out today. Why did I come? No, there's a lot of good principles here that apply in all of our lives. But particularly for those that are, are married, I think there's some things that we'll cover this morning that I hope and pray will be a blessing to you, but it will also be a challenge uh, to you in this uh, particular season of your life. Timothy Keller uh, wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. I highly recommend it if you have an opportunity to read it. Uh, I think it'll be a blessing for you and for your marriage. I'm going to quote from the book a number of times this morning. He has a lot of uh, beautiful thoughts there. He says this at one point. He says, sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. Uh, characterizes relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than what we are getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship, i.e. consumerism, right? What can I get out of this? If I can't get enough out of this, if this is not beneficial for me, why should I need this? Why do I need this? Let me cut my losses and let me go on. This has also been called commodification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange um, economic exchange relationships. And so the very idea of covenant, which is really critical in the word of God, is disappearing in our culture. Covenant is therefore a concept increasingly foreign to us, and yet the Bible says it is the essence 
of marriage. And a marriage is a covenant. You make a vow one to another. There's a covenant that extends beyond just something that's saying, yes, I'll do this. It's something that's firm. It's something that's supposed to be lasting. Unfortunately, in our culture and society, we've lost that idea of covenant, and we've come to a place of consumerism. What is good for me? What can I get out of this? Unfortunately, TV, movies have really given us a false sense of what marriage is, what relationships are, because they're thrown away a dime a dozen. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, it says, Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers the multitudes of sin. And so love is such a key characteristic in whatever relationship that we're in. But particularly in marriage, it's so important for us to be expressing and showing love one to another. It's not about how much can I get out of this relationship. It's how much can I give in this relationship. And unfortunately, because of what we see in our culture around us and because of our own human nature that is very selfish in and of itself, we are constantly thinking, how come I'm not getting more out of this? This is not fair to me, right? And whether it's in marriage or in another relationship, we're always looking for what benefits me. We're, on Wednesday nights, we've been doing a series called The Marriage Course uh, that Johnny and Shirley have been leading. And I want to encourage you that if we run this again to, to sign up and to come out, it's just seven sessions. One of the best things that you can do for your family, one of the best things that you can do for your children is to invest in your marriage. And to be able to come out and learn from these topics some of the, the topics that is covered is strengthening connection, the art of communication, resolving conflict, the power of forgiveness, the impact of family, good sex, love in action. And I think these are really important topics that help uh, marriages thrive and prosper. But this morning, I want to share with you from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now, you might not have probably heard a message about marriage from the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Usually it's taken from other places. But I found this passage really relevant to some really important key principles uh, that we can apply in, in marriage. It says this, Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple-braided triple cord is not easily broken. So I want to just share with you five principles from this passage that I think are really relevant to marriage, but it's also relevant to any type of relationship as well. Um, and I think you can translate these principles to if you're single uh, and if you're not married, I think these things are really important, really as it reflects the character and nature of Jesus uh, in our lives. So number one, live a selfless life. This is what Jesus asks us to do. Whether you're married or not married, it's important for us to live a selfless life. But guess what? If you're married, you get to do that at home every single day, right? To the person that sleeps right next to you, right? If you come into a marriage seeking, what can I get out of this? Or how can I change the other person? That's going to fail. And it's going to fail pretty quickly. 
right? But if you come into a marriage, if you come into a relationship seeking instead, how can I bless that other person? How can I live sacrificially? How can I give? How can I share my life with that person? How can I look to bless that person instead of my own desires? Then you're off on the right, right pathway. So in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 4, it says this, two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. Come into the relationship or be in the relationship not seeking how can I succeed, but seeking instead how can my spouse succeed. If it's all about us and we're living a very selfish, self-centered life, that marriage is not going to really work out well. But if we seek to help the other person succeed, then you're going to have a thriving, prosperous marriage. Don't seek to try to change that person, but seek to change yourself. Live a selfless life. Timothy Keller says it this way. Whether we are husband or wife, we are not to live for ourselves, but for the other. And that is the hardest yet single most important function of being a husband or a wife in marriage. That's a pretty Stark statement there. The single most important function of being a husband or wife in marriage is what? Not to live for ourselves. And unfortunately, in our society, in our culture, this is what we are consumed by. In our society, in our culture, and even our own human nature, this is what pushes us and thrives within us. I want to do this. I want to be that. I want to succeed. I want to have this. I want others to do this for me. I want this and I want that. It's all I, 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 instead of this character and nature of Christ that seeks to bless the other person instead of seeking their, uh, your own gain. In Philippians, Paul says it like this. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. See, Jesus had the spirit and attitude, not for his gain, but for the gain of others. Not for what would make him comfortable and well, because otherwise he wouldn't have died on the cross, but instead for the blessing and edification for the rest of mankind, the rest of humanity. I'm going to die so that the whole world can be saved. Seek the best and the interests of others, right? If you look at a, a couple in the Old Testament, Ruth and Boaz, okay? If, uh, the, the story of Ruth and Boaz is a beautiful story. Ruth, if, if you remember the story, basically what happened is Ruth's husband died. She was left with her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law let her go said, please go back. I, I, I can't do anything for you. Go back to your people. But what did Ruth say? Did, did Ruth seek out her own benefit and her own comfort? No. She wanted the benefit and blessing of her mother-in-law. This wasn't even a marriage relationship. She want, this was her attitude and her spirit. And that's why it's so important, especially for the single people here as well, is that your spirit and attitude and character need to be transformed and changed even before you get married. Because you get into a marriage with a very selfish, self-centered attitude and spirit, right? You're going to be the one with the box that has all of the notes being frustrated with people, right? Thanks, Brandy. Ruth and Boaz, same thing. Boaz was seeking the blessing of others. When Ruth came to pick in Boaz's fields, what did Boaz say? 
He says, you pick as much as you want. Don't worry about it. And my men will protect you and, and, and make sure no harm will come to you. Boaz looked to protect Ruth. Boaz looked to bless her. He didn't care if he was losing food, losing money, losing any of those things. He wanted the best in others. And this is the beauty and the blessing of marriage, that if both people come into the marriage seeking the blessing and benefit of the other person, then it succeeds. If you come into the relationship wanting the other person to succeed, wanting to the other person to do well, wanting to bless and give to the other person, that's when both, that's when the marriage can succeed, right? You might think of this and say, well, you know, Daniel, I'm trying to do that, but my wife, or Daniel, I'm trying to do that, but my husband, right? Don't worry about your husband or your wife. Ask God to change you first. Ask God to transform your character. You live sacrificially. You live selflessly and see what God will do. Galatians 6 says it this way, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. It's so important because our culture lives completely differently. Timothy Keller says it like this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. In sharp contrast with our culture, The Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. That means that love is more fundamentally action than emotion. But in in uh, talking this way, there is a danger of falling into the opposite error that is characterized by many ancient traditional societies. One of the blessings that we have here in our church is that we're a very multicultural church with a lot of different cultures and different traditions as well. And so you might come from a tradition that highly values family. You might come from a tradition that highly values individualism. We want you to come to a tradition that highly values Jesus and the word of God. And so he continues to say this. Traditional societies, um, sorry, it is possible to see marriage as merely a social transaction, a way of doing your duty to family, tribe, and society. Traditional societies made the family the ultimate value in life. And so marriage was a mere transaction that helped your family interests. This is a lot in, in Eastern societies, in Eastern cultures. This is really what it is in terms of marriage, something that's very transactional, something that's very valuable for a family, sets up the family to do well in the future. By contrast, contemporary Western societies, like Canada and America, make the individual's happiness the ultimate value, and so marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. So in our culture, in Western culture and society, it's all about the individual. I want to marry somebody that's going to make me happy. Give me somebody that looks good, has a great job, that's going to take care of me. I'm good that way. It's very individualistic. What can I get out of this? But the Bible sees God as the supreme good not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that ultimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. That is because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant, right? As I I said before, this this covenant, this vow, this, this decision to love. Number two, forgive one another. The closer you are in a relationship with someone, the greater the hurt will be. The guy walking down the street can cuss me out and say all sorts of things to me. I might not really care, right? If Laura says something to me, that's going to hurt deeply. Those words I value a lot. 
And so the closer the person, the greater the value and worth of those words are. Ecclesiastes 4.10 says it this way. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. You will falter. You will fail. That's part of being human. That's part of, part of, of who we are. We will sin. It's, it, we mess up. It's part of what our, what our life is about. Right? And that's why we go to Jesus. That's why we go to the foot of the cross. That's why we get grace and forgiveness from the Lord. But the question is, in a marriage relationship or in any relationship, how do we react when someone hurts us? How do we react when someone does something bad to us? We all come into a relationship maybe with certain expectations. And when those expectations are not met, there's hurt, there's pain. We come into a relationship thinking, well, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, there's pain and hurt that take place, right? Timothy Keller says it this way. While your character flaws may have created mild problems for other people, they will create major problems for your spouse and your marriage. It might create mild problems for the friend that you see once a week, once a month, every couple of weeks. But the person that you live with and that you wake up to every morning and that you go to bed with every night and that you spend hours and hours with, well, those character flaws are going to be accentuated and going to become much bigger. And so forgiveness is really important. To bear with one another, to forgive, to show love and grace to one another. Ephesians 4 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Forgive one another and show grace to others in their time of need. In the Old Testament, we read of an example of a prophet. His name was Hosea. And he had a wife named Gomer who actually was unfaithful to him. And God said this, which is a very challenging verse. Hosea 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love, and love to worship them. Now, let me say, first of all, that Jesus gives uh, an accommodation. Jesus gives an exception to be able to say that if there's marital unfaithfulness, that divorce is permitted. And he says that clearly in the New Testament. And if you're in that situation, there is a valid grounds for a divorce. But I've also seen in my years of pastoral ministry where there has been marital unfaithfulness and the power of forgiveness to reconcile and bring people back together. I've seen it with my own eyes, and I've been amazed to see the power of love that can transform a broken, hurting relationship. I've seen it happen where there was, there was absolutely no hope. Some years ago, uh, there was a, a particular young lady who I'd known for many years as a, as a youth, and you know, on Facebook and Instagram, everything looks well, right? Everyone's having the best life, the most amazing life. And all of a sudden, I get a message, Daniel, can you pray for me? Because my husband and I, he's been unfaithful. We're at the point of divorce. And a broken relationship, really difficult. But in a miracle of miracles, God brought them back together. God restored their marriage, and now they're doing really well. And they have a couple of children, and God has blessed them, and they're following after the Lord. Now, again, I'm not saying that's always the case because there is permission for divorce, as Jesus says. But there's also the power of forgiveness and love. 
that can bring healing and wholeness in the most difficult situation that you can find yourself in. Because Jesus died to heal us in those tough situations. Paul says it like this in Colossians. Clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Let's learn to forgive one another, particularly in this most intimate and close relationship of marriage where, the, where you can find the greatest hurts and the greatest pain as well. We should experience the greatest forgiveness there as well, apart from what Jesus does in forgiving us at Calvary. Number three, be united in love. Unity is so critical to loving each other. Unity in such a divisive world like we're living in today is all the more important, especially in a marriage relationship, right? You can have differences of opinions and think differently, but still be united in purpose and in vision for your life and for your family. Unity is not about giving up your identity or purpose or calling or gifting or what God wants you to do for your own life and just say, okay, no, I'll do whatever the other person wants and we'll be united. No, there's a way of being united together in purpose and calling, but still fulfilling what God has for you individually as well. Ecclesiastes says it's like this. Two people lying close together can keep each other warm. Lie close together. Don't, don't lie far apart, right? Don't, don't sleep in different beds. Don't kick the person out to the sofa, right? Lie close together. Keep each other warm. Be united together. The devil is out to divide families. The devil is out to divide marriages. The devil is out to steal and to kill and to destroy. This is the work of the enemy against the family because he knows how important and critical it is, not only for the church, but for the kingdom of God and what he wants to do in our lives. And so he's trying whatever he can to bring division in the family. And I want to encourage you, couples particularly, lie close together, stay united, be together in this mission that God has given to you. In Psalm 133, it says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How much more, when he talks about the family of God and brothers and sisters being together in unity, how much more for, for couples, for husbands and wives to live together in unity. There, there's so many times when there's opportunities to tear each other apart. There's so many times to, to speak words of, of division and contention and tear someone down with your words and do evil things one to another. As time goes by, Sometimes love fades, and, and there's so many opportunities where you can uh, have some distasteful thoughts and ideas and intentions and motives and words to your spouse. It shouldn't be the case. Seek after love and seek after unity. And I want to encourage everyone, particularly the couples, don't hide things from your other spouse. Don't hide things from your spouse because that leads to division. Be united together. And if you're united together, share everything together. The moment you start dividing, the moment you start hiding things, the moment you start separating things, you're opening up the door for division to come within your marriage as well. And I want to encourage you, share all things together. Don't hide one from another. Don't hide things one from another. Right? Have everything in common together and do life together united with one purpose and one vision. 
Matthew 19 says, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split, let no one split apart what God has joined together. I, I want to share with you one thing that I often share with, with couples uh, that, I, that I do uh, marriage counseling with. God has created us as, as a tripartite being, body, soul, and spirit. And often in a, in a marriage relationship or even in a dating relationship or if you're seeking a spouse as well, we tend to put the priority on some things more than the other. And actually what happens is it really uh, tends to create division within two people. So we are created as body, soul, and spirit, right? And so there is a uniting of all three of them in marriage that is so critical and important and as I'll get to in the last point, a triple, corded, a triple braided cord is hard to be broken. Now, our, a normal understanding or a traditional understanding of that that you've probably heard is that third cord is Jesus, right? So for me, it would be Daniel, Laura, and Jesus, triple braided cord, right? It's hard to be broken. But I'd also like to look at that in a way that it's actually our body, soul, and spirit that's really important. And, and in a relationship, in a marriage, there's the uniting of those three together. And oftentimes, we put priority on one or the other or two instead of all three. And sometimes we leave the third one and we actually cast it aside, which is not good. And it actually creates division within a marriage relationship. So let me explain that a little bit better. So the uniting of bodies together in marriage is so critical and important, right? The sexual union that it happens in marriage brings people together as one. Unfortunately, in the culture and world that we live in today, we see in television and we see uh, in, in our society, people can just sleep around. Ah, it doesn't matter. I can sleep with this person, sleep with that person, have sex with this person, have sex with that person. It's not going to affect me. It will affect you. And if you doubt that, ask the person that was abused even just once. Ask the person that was touched inappropriately even just once. And understand the scar and the pain that that one physical act has left in their life, both emotionally and spiritually. It is significant. And so when we think that we can just go and sleep with anyone and sleep with this person and that person, we're actually taking away of what God wants to do in the marriage covenant as bodies are united together in one in sexual intimacy. Now, sometimes people put so much priority and, pre and pressure on that and say, well, I want somebody that looks really good, that's beautiful, that's handsome. I want to make sure our sexual chemistry is really good. And, you know, I, I want that to be very important. It is important, right? It is something that, that, that people need to consider in terms of the marriage covenant in the marriage bed because it unites people together as one. The second thing is the soul, the joining together of souls, the mingling of souls together where our soul is the seat of our emotions. It is the place where we express love and, and, and kindness and also anger and sadness and things like that. And there is a uniting together in marriage of souls coming together, where, where, where the souls come together and they experience that love and grace and peace and joy and heartache and pain together. And some people, they have the, the, the bodily connection of sexual intimacy in a marriage where their bodies are connected together and there's that oneness that's there. And some people have the connection of the souls where they're expressing love and joy and kindness and grace and there's that uniting and mingling of souls together. 
And unfortunately, sometimes the third one is often discarded. The third one is put all low priority. Oh, I want someone that, that I can have this wonderful sexual relationship with, and I want someone that can understand my emotions and I can talk to and have, have this uh, fellowship and intimacy with and share my deepest uh, desires, and all of that is good. But what about the joining of spirits together in seeking the Lord? What about that third connection where you, where you can go together with that person in worship and prayer? where you can, with holy hands, lift up and praise the Lord together as husband and wife and worship together, where in times of need and difficulty, you can go to the Lord and cry out to the Lord and say, Jesus, we need you. Our family needs you. And do you know where you see it the most, where that, that connection is not there? If one, if one spouse is someone, say, that is following after Jesus and, and loving the Lord, and unfortunately maybe the other spouse has no relationship with Christ, hey, but the first bodily connection is there, and the second, the emotional connection is there? But, you know, ah, spiritual stuff, you don't really go to church, it's not really that important. But guess what happens? Infertility in the family, a loss of a loved one, a financial crisis, something major sickness that happens. And guess what? One spouse goes crying out to the Lord, I need you, Jesus. And the other spouse is just standing way back. I don't know what they're doing. They're like praying and they want me to go to church with them too. And in the time of greatest need, in the time when that spouse wishes, oh, I wish my husband, I wish my wife would stand with me and cry out to God and seek the Lord. It's not happening. Because the priority was put on the sexual relationship, on the emotional relationship, but not on the spiritual relationship. Do you see that, church? It's so important because a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Young people, people that are single here, that you're asking the Lord for, for a lifelong partner, don't put one over the other. All three are important. Seek Jesus first and seek someone who's going to love Jesus more than he or she is going to love you. And have that connection in all three ways. That's why in Ephesians it says, Ephesians 4 and verse 3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. I want to encourage you, find that unity in a bodily sexual relationship in the context of marriage, find that unity in the mingling of souls and emotions and love and grace one with another as your souls are united together, and find that unity in, in that spiritual relationship as you pray together, read the word of God together, do life together, seeking Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and following him with all your heart for your family. All three takes work. All three, not gonna happen naturally. It takes work. It takes Jesus. It takes the help of the Lord. Number four, and I'll quickly finish, support one another. Regardless of whatever happens, support one another. Fight for one another. Be there for one another. Ecclesiastes says it this way. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Stand back to back and conquer. 
When you're standing back to back, you're supporting one another. You're standing for one another. You're helping one another. It's so important to support your spouse. Oftentimes uh, in marriages, sometimes spouses look for support outside of their other spouse. They, they look for support with this person and with that person. And, and it's not wrong to have that support from friends and family and everything. But your first and primary source of support, next to Jesus, of course, is your spouse. Support each other, right? In Thessalonians, it says this. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you're already doing. Ultimately, marriage is to help us prepare for eternity. Ultimately, marriage is temporal just for this life. And so the key aim for the husband, prepare your wife for eternity. The key aim for the wife, prepare your husband for eternity. Life is temporal. 50 years, 60 years, sometimes less than that. 70 years, 80 years, 90. How can you, how can you even compare that to a million, a billion years for all eternity? Right? Timothy Keller says it this way. Um, within the Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when it gets there, and when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Husbands, would you love your wife to say this to you? Wives, would you love your husbands to say this to you? This is the context of a marriage that seeks after the Lord. And the last thing, weave a Christ-centered marriage. Weave Christ into that marriage. Ecclesiastes says it this way, as I already mentioned, three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Husband, wife, Jesus, weave that cord together. We can look at it as well as what I mentioned, body, soul, and spirit weaved together that's not easily broken. When you have all three connected, can you, can you have a, a relationship that just you have the bodily sexual intimacy and the soul emotional intimacy, and can that li last a lifetime? Yeah, it can, right? There's a lot of people that do that. But a triple braided cord is not easily broken. You're not experiencing the fullness of what what, what God intended for marriage in the intimacy of the sexual union, in the intimacy of the soul union, in the intimacy of worshiping God in spirit and in truth together, right? Keller says it this way, if we look to our spouses to fill up our tanks in a way that only God can do, we are demanding an impossibility. So when you look at that triple braided cord, husband, wife, and Jesus, don't expect from your wife what you're expecting from Jesus, Right? Right? What, if you, what, what, if, what if you were to tell your wife, oh, Jesus would have done that? Don't put that standard on your wife. Or if you look at your husband and say, well, Jesus would have done that. Jesus would have you know, taken out the garbage for me if he was here. <laughs> right? Or Jesus would have did this. What would Jesus do? You know, in this but don't put, it, it, it's a joke, but in a, in a serious way, don't put a standard on your husband or on your wife that you actually expect from Jesus. Jesus promised that he would never leave you or forsake you. Jesus promised that he will always understand you. Jesus promised that he will always be with you. Husbands and wives, we fail. 
We might not always be there. We get busy, we do this, and we might not be there in the most critical time, but who will be there? Jesus. But the moment you say, oh, my wife, you should have been there at this point. Why did you get so busy with that? And then bitterness and hurt and unforgiveness begin to develop. And what you expected Jesus to do, you're asking your wife to do. And what you expected Jesus to do, you're asking your husband to do. And they're not living up to that expectation. And it leads to pain, hurt, guilt, and unforgiveness. Weave that triple, triple braided cord, right? And ultimately, in Ephesians, it says, Paul says, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. All of these things, when we talk about marriage, is just temporary. The eternal thing that God is doing lasts forever. And he's talking about Christ and the church. I have no time to get into that. That's a whole nother, he calls it a mystery. It's a real mystery. Worth a whole nother message at another time. But let me tell you the story of um, Hudson and Maria Taylor. Hudson and Maria Taylor, they were missionaries to China. And they had a burden to share the gospel to previously unreached people in new lands. Maria's father died when she was only six years old. And her mother died four years after that when she was 10 years old. And her parents were both missionaries to China as well. Despite the suffering and the loss, Maria loved God deeply. She longed for holiness. She was passionate to share the gospel. And even though she and Hudson Taylor as well faced much opposition, um, they persevered in times of suffering and trials. And Hudson Taylor, he was a single man when he went to uh, China, and he got to know Maria, and he wanted to marry Maria, but everyone else was against it because of the way Hudson Taylor lived and because of the way that he uh, desired to reach people with the gospel. Um, and so she said, Maria said this, quote, though I sometimes feel that the greatest earthly pleasure that I desire is to be allowed to love the individual whom I have mentioned so prominently in my letter, i.e. Hudson Taylor, and to hold closest and sweetest intercourse with him spiritually as well as temporarily that two fellow mortals can hold, I desire that he may not hold the first place in my affections. I desire that Jesus... May be, the one, may be to me the chiefest among 10,000, the altogether lovely. I think she had her priorities right, right? That Jesus would be first. They went through so much hardship and difficulty in their lives in ministry. Finally, they were able to get married. And after they got married, they lost their firstborn uh, child, uh, daughter, to illness. Uh, two years later, they wanted to send uh, four of their children to England because living in China and the situation that they were going through was very difficult for them and for their children. And so to give them a little bit of better life, they wanted to send them to England. And before they could go, one of the children uh, died at the age of five. And then in 1870, Maria, at the age of 33, she died. After giving birth to another child who died three days before, it was death all over the place. Hudson Taylor said this, he and he only, speaking of Jesus, knew what my dear wife was to me. He knew how the light of my eyes and the joy of my heart were in her. But he saw that it was good to take her, good indeed for her. And in his love, he took her painlessly. And not less, and not less good for me who now must toil and suffer alone, yet not alone, for God is nearer to me than ever. Worship team, please come. He wrote this to a, to a ministry friend. He said this, quote, what can, Jesus meet, what, what can Jesus meet my need? 
yes, and more than meet it. No matter how intricate my path, how difficult my service, no matter how sad my bereavement, how far away my loved ones, no matter how helpless I am, how deep are my soul longings, Jesus can meet all and all and more than meet them. See, they had their priorities on Jesus, but they loved each other deeply. And at age 33, Maria was dying, and this was one of her last conversations with Hudson Taylor. It went like this. Hudson Taylor said, my darling, are you conscious that you are dying? Dying? Do you think so? Yes, you're going home. You will soon be with Jesus. Maria responded, I am so sorry. Hudson said, you are not, you are not sorry to go to be with Jesus. Maria said, oh no, it's not that. You know, darling, that for 10 years past, there has not been a cloud between me and my Savior. I cannot be sorry to go to him, but it does grieve me to leave you alone at such a time, yet he will be with you and will meet all your needs. She said, not a cloud for the last 10 years. Could you say that? After losing so many children and then on death's bed as well, and she's like, not a cloud. Jesus has been good to me. After losing your parents at age six and then age 10, not a cloud. Jesus has been so good to me. Shall we all stand? I want us to read together um, a portion of scripture. Sorry if you can put my slides back up again. I want us to read, uh, read together a portion of scripture from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 and verse 4 to 7. This is the chapter of love, right? But if you read these verses, right, can I, I'm going to read them first slightly differently, okay? A husband is patient and kind. A husband is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. He does not demand his own way. It is not, he is not irritable, and he keeps no record of being wronged. It, he does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. He never gives up. He never loses faith. He is always hopeful, always endures through every circumstance. Can I get an amen from a woman here? Wouldn't that be a wonderful husband? Right? Okay, let's try this again, okay? A wife is patient and kind. A wife is not jealous or boastful, nor proud or rude. She does not demand her own way. She is not irritable, and she keeps no record of being wronged. She does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. She never gives up, never loses faith. She is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Can I get a husband to say amen? amen. All right? Isn't that beautiful? Now let's read, now let's read this. Let's, let's read this together. Let's read this together, but with the word love, because whether we're married or whether we're single, in whatever relationship that God has us, has us in right now, God wants us to exude the love of Jesus. And so let's read this together with the word love. Don't, don't put your wife's name in there or don't put your husband's name in there or, or anything like that. Maybe in your mind if you really want to. Okay, I'll give you permission. But verbally, let's read this together. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, 
never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love can change our lives. Let's speak the name of Jesus, because Jesus is love.